Well, good morning. Good to see you this morning. You have read together the, the passage that we're going to be in together. So take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, to that passage of Scripture. If I can get my iPad to come on. I hope you've had a good week. I hope you've come together this morning to intentionally worship the Lord and in doing so uh, to offer to Him sacrifice of praise but to receive from Him instruction in His Word. I think both of those are really important elements of what we do in worship. If you spend any time with me, and my wife probably can attest to this best, maybe my, my children, I, I love a good story. Um, my background is, is no more interesting than anybody else's, but it's interesting to me. I was born in Northern Ireland, lived there till I was four, and then my family immigrated to Nova Scotia, Canada, where I, I grew up. I was the youngest of five children, and to this day, my dad is in Nova Scotia, he's 83 years old, but if he starts to tell a story, he'll start by talking about back home. Now understand, he's been in Canada since 1971, but back home is the old country, it, it's Ireland, and he'll tell old stories of the quarry where he used to work and all of those things, and my dad is just, he's a great storyteller, you add to that the fact that he he hasn't lost his Irish accent at all. And the story just becomes engrossing. So I remember sitting, whenever we'd get my dad to, to, to talk and tell story. We'd get him started about, about back home and stories of his childhood. Dad's one of 13 children. And I'd just get engrossed in the stories, the places and the people. And, and I'd been there, but four years old, I didn't remember any of it. But, but he could almost describe it in, in, in living color so that your brain went there. I just... I love, I love storytelling, and maybe in my simplicity, that's part of why I, I love biblical narrative, uh, and this morning we're in a passage of scripture that is narrative, it, it's story. In fact, um, when Luke starts this book, Acts chapter 1, he actually writes to Theophilus and, and says to him, now in my last treatise, the last letter I wrote, which would be his gospel, I began to tell all of the things that Jesus started to do, which almost gives the indication he's going to write another book that is actually going to tell us more stories about what Jesus continued to do. And I think that's really, really important as we come to the book of Acts. Because Acts is not just a book that tells us about the beginning of the church. It is. But who began the church? It's not a story about superhumans who somehow were, were extra special Christians that could do unbelievable things that absolutely rocked the world. It's actually not. It's, a, it's a, a set of stories about ordinary men who in humble submission before God allowed Jesus Christ to continue to do His work of building His church through their lives. And so as we come to Acts chapter 3, we see really maybe the, the first saga. We know what unfolds in the early chapters and, and Acts chapter 2 and the coming of the Holy Spirit and the technical start of the church. And out of that, all that happens and, and Peter preaches his first message. Can you imagine, by the way, what he must have been thinking that night when he went home? You wonder if he went home and finally he lays down in his bed and he thinks to himself, who was that? Like, what just happened? Where, where did that come from? 
You ever amazed even at what God is doing in your own life? But I think as we come to this next story, if you will, we see a kind of a different setting. And I want us to to understand some as we consider this saga. I've been reading a lot lately. I, I work with college students. Because of that, I I like to wrestle through how to help them deal with what is going on around them. So I've been reading a lot lately about things like critical race theory. I've been reading a a fascinating book, a simple book. But John Stone Street wrote a little book, co-authored it, and it's simply called Culture. Culture. Have you ever thought much about culture? It, it's interesting because sometimes I think we, we, we meld things in our minds. So right now this morning you're sitting there and I say to you, culture, what goes through your mind? What are you, what are you thinking? There are some of you that may be sitting here and you think kind of old school like I did and you think, Oh, I remember my parents telling me, now look, we're having company coming over. Act a little cultured. I don't know what that meant. I guess it meant to match my socks or something like that. But, but, but there was a time when that's what it meant. Culture had this idea of refinement, right? There's the idea then, I think, that some have on the other side that as we think about culture, we tend to naturally think world, worldliness. And you know that culture really is not either one of those. It's somewhat both of those. But but I think in some measure we, we tend to want to live today repudiating the culture. We live today with the thought that culture is the world and culture is bad. Stone Street does a really interesting thing. By the way, I, I would recommend the book to you because... It actually, in, in the introduction to it, he says, I want, you know, I'm kind of writing this book simply as someone who is called to lead five little image bearers to know how to live for God in this world. That's how he writes. He said, so I'm, I'm writing, a primary audience is the people who have to raise other little image bearers in this world and know how they're supposed to live. That, that's the focus of the book. I think in telling us the saga of how God established the church of the things that Jesus did, part of what he is doing for us is saying, okay, how how do you get involved in the culture in which you find yourself in a way that makes an impact for the gospel? And I think there are two great dangers in that. I think one of them is that we just completely embrace and imbibe imbibe everything that is in the culture because we're called to reach this world. So so just become part of it. And and there's a negative side to culture that we ought not to embrace. And I think the other side of that is that we completely repudiate and renounce culture and we detach from the world. One of the dangers in doing that is that we tend, I think, at times to align people and culture. 
And it's very easy if we're not careful, if our mindset is culture is negative and we detach from the culture, that we actually detach from people. If we assign uh, to the culture the fact that it's an evil culture, it's not long before as we live in this world, we're actually living as though the people are evil. What is culture? It's very simply, and, and Stone Street puts it this way, culture simply is this. It is what people do with what God made. Think, think about that. Culture is what people do with what God made. Do you think Palmetto Baptist Church has a culture? Of course we do. There's many of us, I think, I think, now maybe I'll be wrong, if we ended the service today and nobody came up here and said, Help us put chairs away. That as soon as we did our doxology and, and, and we, we, we ended that, what's the first thing you would do? You would stand up, turn around. If you're on this end of the row, realizing they hook together and it's easier to stack them that way and start to stack chairs. That's become part of our culture. Now, not one that I think needs to stay forever, but, but that's become part of our culture. Imagine if you go visit a church somewhere. And they have chairs like these, but they leave them out. And, and like before the deacons notice what's going on, you got four rows of chairs stacked. They'd be like, what? What's wrong with, like, is he loading those in the car? Or like, what's going on? We have, we have a culture. We have things that we do because we're a group of people that are called together doing things. Are we living in a day when culture has a lot of negativity to it? Yes. Why? Because sinful, broken people in a fallen world are doing with what God made that which is contrary to His design. The book of Acts is a stunning story about how God penetrates what we know from just weeks, months, and years before, was a very broken and hostile culture. Remember, the story that we're looking at, not just weeks before this, they killed Jesus. God comes to a group of men, and, 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 and the resurrected Christ says to them, you're going to be my witnesses. And understand the strength of the tone of that statement, right? We think witnesses, that is people who live, right, for what they believe. The word actually is where we get our word martyr, and it actually is more the idea of you're going to die for what you believe. That, that's more the impact it has on them. And he says, you're going to be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. How about we turn that around? Can we go to the uttermost part of the earth first? For us, that's like, ooh, I don't want to go way over there. You know, it's uncomfortable. I don't know that. But for them, they knew what was at home. And he says, you're going to be witnesses for me here. And you're going to watch the gospel spread from here. Through what Jesus did. So, Acts simply is, is an interesting book. I, I think... As we consider the gospel and culture, understanding the book of Acts, I'm supposing I have to turn this on too, right? Am I on?
I am a technological wonder. <laughs> ah, green probably means on, right? Yes. So you'll see four things, really. So we get a grasp of, of the book of Acts as we come to this one passage. You can track what is going on in Acts by places. I think, really, Acts 1.8 gives us an understanding of what's going to happen through the whole book. You'll see the book unfold in Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria. And ultimately, we find Paul at the end of the book in Rome, the uttermost parts of the earth. But you'll track it by people as well. Early on, it's Peter and Peter, in a sense, and the Jews. And by the time we're done, it's Paul and Paul and his team. And then the gospel going to the Gentile nations. And so you kind of see this flow throughout the book. But, but also, it is a story of, of persecution, And why why do I mention that? Because even at the end of this, like the story we're going to look at today is actually found in chapter 3 and chapter 4. And you can't detach the two because by the time we get through chapter 3 and get on into chapter 4, where does the story end? It ends in persecution. They're going to be challenged about what they're doing and why they're doing it and how are you proclaiming Jesus and how can you go to this nation and throw him who we killed in in our face? Don't you know what you're doing? You're undermining everything that we've built. And so it's going to be persecution and ultimately we'll see that there's a story throughout this gospel of power. And namely here, it's the power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of those who would do God's work for God's glory. And, and I mentioned that you can actually chart the whole book this way. Because I think you can actually see this over and over and over again in every story. So I want to encourage you, as you read the book of Acts, to look for places. Where are they? What's the setting? What are they doing? What's the culture? Who is there? Who are they reaching? Who is doing the reaching? Persecution. How, how is what they're doing received? And then ultimately, look what God does. And I think it'll encourage us. So as we come to this story today, I want you to keep those things in mind. And I really want us to see just a couple of things. I want us to see the miracle. And then I want us to see the message. And I want us to look at a story and see maybe what lessons God would have for us from it. So as we consider the miracle, I want us to see, first of all, the people, the people involved. Who, who is this? What is, what is going on? And as we consider the people involved, let, let's just look at the characters. And that's always the right thing to do when dealing with narrative. What are, the, what are the characters doing? Let me ask you a question. Knowing the culture they're living in, knowing the challenges that they have faced, knowing the stir that they have just caused in Acts chapter 2. Where would you expect to find the apostles? Maybe there's those on one side that say, I would expect to find them going back out in the marketplace. Like, that was a pretty good first go. Let's go see what else God does. Or if you know them, you might expect to find them in the other side. What did we just do? Like... We know they're coming now. Like the army's coming, the troops are coming, it's over, everybody's going to know what just happened. And what's interesting to me is, in this story, you just find them doing what they're supposed to do. So consider, first of all, I keep bumping the the button, consider first of all the apostles. 
The story starts out that it's basically nine o'clock. It's the hour of prayer. Uh, It's the ninth hour, three o'clock, the hour of prayer. And what are they doing? They're going up to the temple to pray. They're worshiping God the way they knew they were supposed to. I don't think that it was any accident that it was the hour of prayer, by the way. I think they're engaged in doing what they know they're supposed to do to worship God. And in a sense, they, they recognize that, that they are beggars. They need God's help. They're going up to the temple to seek the Lord. By the way, I think this is a potent lesson. I think that if we consider how in the world are we going to reach a culture, a culture like this, for God, what should we do? We could come up with all kinds of programs, but I tell you, the church has probably gotten too engaged in that and has forgotten that we must begin with prayer. So again, I think this was a formal thing for them. They're Jews. They know the schedule. They know what they're supposed to do. But I don't think it's any accident that they're going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. The apostles are engaged in doing life the way they're supposed to do life. You know, one of the interesting things, I think, about the gospel and culture is that so often we look at the culture and based upon what the culture is doing, we allow it to dictate what we do or don't do. We live lives without thinking about it that actually are are maybe a little bit responsive and if we're not careful, they're reactionary. Think about it this way for a moment. We, we, We know what's going on in our world. We know, we know what's happening. Maybe right now somewhat because it's unique, it happens every four years. We're, we're having some conversations that look and sound somewhat like the Olympics. Did you see that? That was pretty cool. And maybe there's all these social dynamics going on, so we're having conversations about the social. So we do some of that. But outside of that, think with me for a moment. Think through the bulk of your conversations with people and ask yourself this question. What has the bulk of your conversation been about? And has it been nothing more than being reactionary to what is going on in the culture? You see, in that way, culture shapes us. More than that, think about what you have or have not been doing. Now, it's a unique time to say that. Whenever there's lockdowns, you kind of have to do what the culture's doing. If you're locked down, you can't go to work. I, I get all of that, but... But outside of that, think about how you live. Think about what you do. And ask yourself how much of that is really intentional, how much of it is merely just an everyday response to what the culture is doing around me. I think it's important to note that the disciples do what they know to do. They do the right thing. And so we have the apostles, but then there's this unique character. For alliteration's sake, I'm going to label him the asker. There's this guy who's there at the gate, and he's seeking alms. What what a scene this is, in a sense. They're going up at the hour of prayer. Jesus is gone. 
They've declared the gospel. They've got the great commission. In their heart, they're probably thinking, we don't know where we go from here. And there's a real sense that as they go up to the temple to pray, they're the beggars, right? God, we need your help. We need your direction. And they come to the house of God to beg for God's help, to beg for God's power, to beg for God's protection. And what does God put at the gate? But a physical beggar who is actually an exemplification of all that they are spiritually. Think about him for a minute. One, he knew where to be. He's going to get alms. He knew where he needed to be. Secondly, he knew when to be there. He knew when the people would be coming. He knew the hour of prayer. He knew that they would be coming to give. He needed help to do what he could not do. Someone got him there. He did what he could do. He's laying there and he begs for alms. And he asked for what he could not provide for himself. And he realized he had no right to what he was seeking. There's this beggar. I think that's a potent picture. His description is actually a prescription for how we should be approaching God. I think we ought to think about the way we approach God. And we ought to start by saying, okay, I'm going to be where I need to be. I'm going to be there when I should be there. I realize I need help to do what I cannot do. But in doing that, I will do what I can't do. And I'll beg of God to do for me what I can't do for myself. Understanding that I have no right to anything from Him. I think it's a pretty good picture of prayer. So consider him for a moment. Consider his paralysis. Luke tells us that it was from birth. Acts 4.22, for over 40 years, this man had suffered from this ailment that made him lame. He was born that way, chapter 3 and verse 2 had never known the freedom of going anywhere without petitioning others to carry him there. And I think that's really important as we see the story unfold, as we see particularly the response of the crowd. But then see, not only was, was this a, a, a congenital illness, it was actually a conscripting one. It would seem that this, this man uh, has been not just crippled from his birth, but he's been a beggar for most, if not all, of his life. We have to understand that this is the social program of Israel. This, this is how they did it. If you had somebody in his condition, the beggars would be brought to the temple and there they would beg and there the, the people of Israel would come and under their, their religious rituals, they, they had a, right, a, a responsibility to take care of these people. In a sense, there wasn't welfare or social security. This was the, the life that a lame man was bound to if he was going to, to survive. And so they bring him and they lay him at the gate of the temple. And it tells us that they did so daily. It's almost a sense like this is his turf. This is his territory. And in a sense, he had staked his claim. And here the gate is, is interestingly identified for us as the beautiful gate. And it seems like, in a sense, this is... The normal place where you would expect to find this guy who has been a beggar all his life. Why is that important? 
Because if the apostles are doing what they're normally doing, and granted, when they're with Jesus, they've been out in Galilee, so not always in Jerusalem, but it's not the first time they've been there. And this man is normally in that position. We can assume that this isn't the first time the apostles have encountered this man. What we can understand is this, that it, it looks like everybody in the culture knows who this man is. They know his condition. This wasn't some actor. He's not putting on a show. This wasn't a great way to get money without having to do a day's work. The culture knows this man. This is, this is where he is every day. He is there, he is well known, and he's in a highly visible area. And he's been lame all his life. And so now you have the apostles and you have this man. And so what I want us to look at is not just the people involved, but I, I want us to see the problem solved. What do they do? How do they respond? So he petitions Peter on his way in. Alms, alms, alms for the poor. I, I don't know how he did that. I'm pretty sure it wasn't in English. But he's going through the normal routine to get, to get help. And Peter gives him a potent answer that maybe in just reading the story, we, we don't first pick up on. Peter says to him, and I love the, the way the King James says it, silver and gold have I none. I, I just, there's just something the way that rolls out. I don't have anything to give you. And I do think it's, it's interesting that here's this bankrupt beggar and he cries out to them for help. And he does so in the midst of a religious system where there actually is now something to their spirituality found in the fact that they would give to him. So there's a sense in which on the way into the temple, if I have money and I give it to this beggar, it actually is a means of displaying my self-righteousness. That I can put on display for people around me the fact that, that I'm doing some good works on my way into going to the presence of God. And in that scenario, Peter actually answers, I don't have any money to give you. And I actually think that it's an expression of the heart of Peter that he is actually acknowledging, in a sense, his own spiritual bankruptcy. There's actually nothing that I can do for you. And that doesn't mean that you don't help people in need. It doesn't mean you don't do something good for them because Peter's answer continues. He says, but what I have, I am going to give to you. And I think there's this potent moment in which we're faced with what do I actually do in this setting with the culture? The easy thing, a benevolent thing would have been for him to take whatever money he had and, and give it to this man. But there's something else that is going on in this setting. I don't know that, that, that I, I don't think, I don't think Peter's lying. I don't think he's telling him, I don't think he's saying, yeah, I got some, but I don't. You know, make sure you keep your money hidden, kids, in case somebody asks for some. Ever been on a trip like that? That's not what's going on. He, it's not like, I, I really think he's telling the truth. But I think the picture is more potent than that. 
And it's in this encounter that I, I want us to come to grips with their reaction to the culture. What does Peter do? And I want you to notice that he drives a very clear message. So I want us to look at the message and here's where I want us to maybe grasp some lessons with regard to the culture. So Peter looks at this guy and he says, look at us. I think it's a potent statement. Focus right here. He puts himself in a sense in focus. He's not going to float around the outside edges He's not going to drift. And sometimes that's our response to culture, isn't it? Maybe we'll just get quiet and maybe we'll just drift away and maybe we'll just stay out to the outside edges and we look into what's going on at the world and we gain all kinds of opinions and and we, we can speak to that, but typically we speak to our own. You can go to community group and talk about the world and how bad it is and what is going on and all these other things. And it's challenging to maybe have a conversation where you're not sure going in with, with, with this conversation that the person you are going to talk to actually might agree with you or disagree or, or, or not agree to the same level. I mean, these are challenging things. And so I, I think there's something really important here when he says, look at us. I, I don't want you to miss this. This is a, a very real, very personal encounter. And he shares, in a sense, the power of Jesus Christ. And so I I want us to see, as the crowd then comes, understanding, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, this isn't a show. The apostles didn't carry some guy out here and pretend that he was lame and, and then, you know, do some kind of faux miracle so that, like, everybody knows this guy. And, and he's walking. In fact, Peter's going to say, this guy you see is in perfect health. What a description that is. Like, it's not like, you know what? He, he couldn't walk here before. Now he just walks with a limp. How good is that? Like, you know, No, he's in perfect health. And so all the details come together that, that, that they know that something real has happened. So understand, he now has this audience, and and maybe this is a little different than the first time he preaches. So what does he do? I want you to see that the first thing he did, and I think this is a powerful lesson for us, he preached Jesus. I'm not saying we shouldn't read books on culture. I just finished reading a, a really powerful book on social justice. I've read three books over the course of the summer on biblical worldview and Christian education. It's where I, I live, and, and much of it is dealing with what is going on in the world and, and how do we speak to it. And, and it's powerful and it's necessary, and I think it's training that we ought to have. But folks, listen to me. 
if we as the church look at the culture and we decide that we're going to get really well informed on what's going on and we fail to realize that the primary task of the church is to tell the culture about Jesus, we'll miss the point. And again, understand me, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be informed, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't be able to interact on the issues of the day, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be able to articulate uh, what we believe in light of the pressing current moment. The question is, why? God did not build His church to leave a presence of people who could always win the argument. He actually left a group of people who, unlike any other, could not just tell who Jesus is, but display what Jesus did. So he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, he makes that very pointed when he's seeing this guy healed. He makes a point to talk about Jesus, and I think he does so because he is declaring the authority and the authenticity of the Son of God. So he preaches Jesus to them. It's interesting that in every encounter with culture, there's, there's a problem These guys, Peter in particular, is now going to encounter two of them. Remember Acts chapter 2, when Peter gets up to preach what is going on? What what have they said about the apostles in that setting? Said, these guys are drunk. Like, remember, you remember that? So in a sense, they're going to now have to declare the gospel, and there's this negativity in the culture. This setting is almost exactly the opposite. I love the way the two stories are put together. They come rushing upon him, and they're saying, these guys must be gods. Like, to do what they just did, there's something extra special going on here. And do you know what? I think often <laughs> we end up finding one or the other reaction in the culture. Very rarely, when we go to do something for God, do we find neutrality. We actually find a negativity. Or sometimes, if we're not careful, we find this, this overt positivity and we can actually miss gospel opportunities because we buy into it. Yeah, you're right. We are unusually nice people. But neither one of those is to become the focus of our conversation. We're not to become defensive when we're accused of being negative. And we're not to get puffed up when we're accused of being just super great people. Oh, you're so nice. You people are always so nice. Ever found yourself in those kind of conversations? I have and have missed gospel opportunities. Oh, I've met a bunch of other people from your church. People from your church are so kind. Oh, that's awesome. And I walk away thinking, we're doing so much for the gospel. And all I did was leave them with my self-righteousness. You're right. We are good people. And so what he does is he preaches Jesus to them. So let me ask you a question as you consider the culture. 
this cultural moment, by the way, you will not best find out what your culture is by watching the national news. You'll best find out what your culture is by looking in your neighborhood. See, culture is somewhat, we look big picture monolithic, right? It's kind of like, whoa, you hear the, the, the primary narratives and that's what's going on in the world. Is that what's actually going on in your neighborhood? Is that, is that what, like, the, the ten houses either side of your house, is that, is that actually what's happening there? Because you know what? We actually can respond to the ten houses either direction of me because I watched the national news last night, and now that's what all these people are doing and thinking. I ask you this question as you think about the world in which you live a world where you're called to steward the gospel and you're thinking about how to be effective in making a difference for God, for His glory there. I'm going to ask you a probing question as you prepare for that. How well do you know Jesus? You see, Peter, as he presents him here, does some really interesting things. He actually declares Jesus' authority. He moves from that, though, in in carrying out the miracle and then through his preaching, he develops Jesus' validity. Peter declares that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was carried out by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of the Jews. He establishes Jesus' validity. He actually moves on from that and he demonstrated Jesus' ability. It was Jesus who restored this lame man to perfect health is what he declares. I wonder, as you come to the world, are you convinced of Jesus' authority? Are you convinced of Jesus' validity? And are you confident in Jesus' ability? Sometimes as we consider the task of taking the gospel to the culture, it's actually there that we quake. And if you're feeling that, I want to challenge you that the first thing to do is get into the Bible and affirm in your own heart and in your own mind until you are convinced about who Jesus is. Go back and convince yourself. Yes, I've read it again. I've looked at the Old Testament prophecies. I've read again the Gospel accounts. I really believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I'm convinced of His validity as the Savior of the world. And then look at your own life. Make that, if you will, the litmus test. Did Jesus really save you? Did He really transform your life? 
Is he actually at work in your life today, growing you up in your faith? Look at the testimony of your own walk with God. Can you look there and say, I am not perfect, but I can watch and see how he changed me. He preached Jesus. I want to challenge you in a sense to keep it simple. You may not be able to debunk every argument in the world. But you can know Jesus. Then a second, a second thing. He proclaimed scripture. Notice what he does in this, and I, I won't go through it all because of time, but it was not just Joel and David who foretold these things about Jesus, but it was all of the prophets. He talks about Moses, and, and you see him actually standing before his audience, and, and he's going to say, you know what, we didn't suck this out of our thumb. This isn't something we made up. This isn't just like a, some new story. What we want you to see is all that happened with Jesus and all that you did in killing Jesus, it actually was foretold. It's in the Scriptures. When I consider the gospel and culture, what should I focus on? I want to challenge you rather than being overwhelmed with how do I have that conversation? How would I ever win that argument? How would I ever debunk that myth? You know where we should turn our attention? To the Word of God. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth, Paul writes to Timothy. He says to him, in, in light of facing this culture at Ephesus, our pastor's been talking about, about Ephesus as he's been, been walking us through that book, but think of what that culture was like. Literally the crossroads of the Roman world. It is, it is culture, if you will, worldly culture on steroids. And what does Paul writing to Timothy tell him to do if he's going to help lead a church in that culture? He says, Timothy, preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, with all long suffering. He says, you know what? You need to interject God's truth into that culture. I think it's interesting that, that Peter doesn't just heal this man in Jesus' name, but as he gets an opportunity now, he's got to talk to the culture. They all come together. They've seen it. What is going on? And he does declare to them Jesus, but he is able to actually interact with them by proclaiming the Scripture. So I ask you first, how well do you know Jesus? I ask you secondly, how well do you know your Bible? Ever been in those conversations where you kind of got blindsided? You go through the conversation and by the time you're done you walked away with it and you maybe feel like, how did that happen? A question came up and you began to talk and now all of a sudden there is a verse that comes to your mind and you're able to share that verse with them and that leads to another part of the conversation. And by the time you're done, you, you walk away thinking, I didn't think I was prepared for that conversation, but you know what? I was able to tell them an awful lot of scripture. Ever have that happen to you? I'm working with college students. That happens to me about eight times a week. Because I'm finding more and more and more that I can't actually sit in my brain and think through how am I going to be prepared to address that. 
And you know what God's doing in my own soul? He's saying, Alan, make sure you know the Word. Get in the Word so that the Holy Spirit can get the Word in you so that when you interact with people in need, what comes out is not a bunch of you, but a bunch of the Word. How are we supposed to deal with people? Yes, we're supposed to be loving and caring and kind. And yes, we're supposed to create a context in which we rightly relate to people. But understand that Paul joins us to speak the truth in love. And I don't think there that he's just saying, always tell the truth. I think that's a good mantra for life. Never lie, always tell the truth. But it is the truth. It is the truth of God. We are to be truth tellers. We're to declare God's word in a culture that is in chaos. How well do you know the scriptures? He was able to tell this, in a sense, crowd who Jesus was, but verify it from the scriptures. As best we know, He didn't say, now today we go up to the temple. We're going to go to that lame guy that's always there. We're going to heal him. And then when everybody comes together, I'm going to pull out the scroll, my sermon. Like as best we can tell, Peter hasn't gone and and prepared, but somehow he's been in the Word and he understands the Old Testament so well that as he tells them about Jesus, he's able to connect the dots. This is what the Word says. This is why this is trustworthy. How well do you know the Word? Thirdly, he proved their guilt. He proved their guilt. Sometimes in dealing with culture, this is where it becomes sticky. Peter says to them, You delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. Have a nice day. He is confrontational. So I don't want you to misunderstand as I talk about how we actually deal with the culture. I am not in any way saying that we find a way to put lipstick or perfume on the problem. It doesn't help anybody. Peter doesn't go to them and say, you know, you've misunderstood some things, but really, all in all, you're pretty good people. Like, after all, you know, there's lots of things wrong, but, but this crowd, you're, you're going up to the temple. That's pretty good. And sometimes that's almost the temptation we have. And understand, he, he is going to be kind. He is going to be direct. They're going to engage the culture. They don't detach. He's going up to the temple the way he's supposed to, so he doesn't write off the culture and stay away from them. There's connection point. But in the midst of that connection point, there's confrontation. And at some point, we have to remember that the most loving thing we can do with people in error is tell them the truth. So he proved their guilt. How well do you know the gospel? How well do you know Jesus? How well do you know your Bible? How well do you know the gospel? 
Maybe it's time for us to give ourselves just again a a good old-fashioned gospel primer, right? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That we were at enmity with God. Is there a loving and a kind way to share with people that they are in need? Yes, there is. And to do anything different actually doesn't give us opportunity to tell them what God has provided for them is the answer to their need. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever tried to confront somebody you never knew? Confrontation's hard. Confrontations are with people that you actually know. Try confronting somebody you don't know. So yes, if we realize that somehow we're going to be in a conversation where we have to bring up the issue of need and guilt, it calls us to develop a relationship and build a bridge by which we gain the interpersonal right to address their need. So no, I'm not saying that today this means, you know what, I heard Alan in church and what I'm going to do is church is over. I'm going to go encounter the culture. Ten houses, he said ten houses either way. I'm going to knock on every one of those doors and walk up and tell them they're filthy, rotten sinners and they're going to die and go to hell. Have a great Sunday. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is at some point as God allows us to build relationships, we have to get to the place where we actually realize what people's real need is and we have to address their need. How well do you know the gospel? Because in the end, he provided the answer. And he does so in an incredibly powerful way. Acts 3.17, Paul says, or Peter says an interesting thing when he says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. And I think there you, you hear the pathos in his voice. He calls them brothers. There's relationship. He feels like he's connected to them. And he makes this statement, I know that you acted in ignorance. What is that all about? Well, think about it for a moment. He was able to, I think address some things with them. Look for a moment at Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know... This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So let's get the picture right. He acknowledges their ignorance, but they were not ignorant of the signs and wonders performed by God through Jesus. They were surely not ignorant of Jesus' teaching or of his claim to be Messiah. That's not what he's talking about. They actually aren't ignorant of the details of Jesus' death. They knew Pilate, and, 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 and they, 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 he knows that they knew about the trial that with, with Pilate, and that even Pilate found him innocent. Somehow this crowd knows of all of that. And Pilate wanted to release him. They also knew that Barabbas was a murderer. 
You might go back and read some of the gospel narrative and wonder, did they really know? Or was there confusion? No. Peter makes it clear. They were choosing a murderer over Jesus. So what were they ignorant about? Because they're certainly guilty. And he establishes their guilt. What they were ignorant about was why they were not innocent. Matthew 27, 25 records for us, And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. So what were they ignorant of? I think they were ignorant of the fact that Jesus actually was the Messiah. Were they guilty of murder? I think they knew it. I think that they understood that they were killing an innocent man. I think many of them felt like it was actually a justified thing. It was a religious thing. They were following religion. There's all kinds of reasons, and we can't assign any specific one to any specific person. But they knew that what happened with Jesus and Pilate and all of that wasn't right. But I think what they were ignorant of was the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He provided an answer. And so I say that very importantly for us. Because I think we even today could engage in conversations and by the time we are done, we can actually help people see they're wrong and feel like we've done a great thing in doing so. Maybe somebody else will come along and we can take them so long and say, hey, we had the argument, we debated, I was able to, in an ethical discussion, lead them to the place where they're, they're making unethical choices. I can have a discussion about life and actually I can get into the science with them and bring them to the place that they understand that life begins at conception. I can get into a moral discussion and I can actually lay out logically why the human race is based in two... Jo- I mean, I can walk through all of those things and I can walk away thinking, I just did a great thing. you know what? I believe in the created order that that men, according to Romans 1, do some things to their inner being. But somewhere in their heart with regard to what God has done and what they do with what God has made, there is something within man, a conscience that can be adjusted. But I believe there is there an understanding somewhat of right and wrong. And it's in different cultures, it's impacted, but there's an understanding of right and wrong. I don't think that's what they're ignorant of. I don't think that's where our efforts need to go. I believe what they're ignorant of is who Jesus is. Why he did what he did. And so that brings me to this point. Are we able to look at the world, to look at the culture, and help them to understand how it is that Jesus paid their debt. How Jesus took their guilt. How Jesus bore their shame. And I want to end there because I think it's where we need to let our heart go. How well do you know your world? And I asked that question at the end. It's my fourth question. 
How well do you know Jesus? How well do you know the Scriptures? How well do you know the Gospel? And I ask you this question, how well do you know your world? And I, and I ask it here, not because I want to drive us into studying all the things that I've talked about. But I actually want it to be a question that em- embraces our heart. How often do you sit and watch the news, read the newspaper, listen to the radio, and you know this world is so guilty? You know that people are so bad and morally bankrupt. Where does it leave you? Does it ever leave you in the place where you think, go get them, God? Or does it leave you in a place of being heartbroken? Does it leave you in a place where you're able to look and say, wow, I'm looking at God's world that He made and I'm watching by and large everybody do something with it that God never intended? What did God do when He looked and saw that? He sent His Son. Do you know this broken world well enough to go beyond what they are doing and see their pain? You know this world well enough to look at how they're living and how they're mistreating God and His creation and realize their ignorance. What they don't know is Jesus. Who He is. Why He came. What He did. And why He did it for them. This is just a story. It's a story at the beginning, if you will, of God through simple men taking His gospel to the ends of the earth. And what I want us to see is in every one of those, there are people in places. They always face persecution. And God's power is on display. I believe that's the pattern God is using to build His church until Jesus comes again. And so stop for a moment and look at this place. And look at these people. And realize the task is hard. And there will be some form of persecution. But that God has provided the power of the gospel to save men and women, boys and girls through the faithful proclamation of His truth by truth proclaimers until He comes. So I look at this little story and I leave us with just four simple questions that I've already asked. The gospel and culture. How do I do that? I can never change this world. It's overwhelming. You can see it getting worse and worse by the day. Yep. How well do you know Jesus? If that leaves a little quake in you, man, go go explore Him again. When Paul faced these devastating challenges, he said that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering being made conformable unto His death. How well do you know the Scriptures? 
Are you convinced in your mind of God's truth? How well do you know the gospel? And how well do you know the world around you to recognize their need and to offer them God's answer? Probably a whole lot more simple (laughs) than it needs to be. But I think this is a right approach. I think it's kind of the approach that Peter used in taking the gospel to his culture. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for a faithful record that records for us things that we never saw or heard. God, we sit here today and we're Gentiles. Thank you that what you proclaimed to this handful of men and then maybe from them to 150 or so that gathered around them, that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Thank you that those faithful truth declarers knew Jesus well enough, knew the scriptures well enough, knew the gospel well enough, and knew their world well enough that it drove them to share the truth in love. And here 2,000 years later, we stand as a testament that you have and are building your church. God, may we step in line. May we hold the rope. May we take up the chain. May we brighten the corner where we are. For Jesus' sake. In His name we pray it. Amen.